0: I never planned on losing my job, but we all know life can change in an instant. And losing my family's health insurance was an even tougher pill to swallow. So I looked into Cobra, but too pricey. Then I found out I could enroll through Covered California, where I was able to choose from good health insurance companies I've actually heard of. I even got help paying for it.
1: There's a limited time to qualify after losing your insurance, so check out CoveredCA.com today. Covered California. It's more than just health care. It's life care.
2: When tracking the domestic dust bunny, you commonly find them hiding under wardrobes next to lost socks. Don't move too suddenly or they'll scurry off. What's utterly fascinating about the dust bunny is that although they are not actually sentient creatures, when they hear that Geico not only
1: saves people money but also has a 97% customer satisfaction rating, it's obvious to them you should switch. Because, yes, switching to Geico is a no-brainer. Oh, no, it's the dust bunny's only natural predator. Run along, dust bunnies, run along. Run along
0: and do my thing. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. I want to get into it, man, you know. Uh-huh. Like, I you know I'm the man, don't you? Uh-huh. Can I count it off?
2: Uh-huh. One, two, three, four. Listening to the Church Politics Podcast with Michael Ware and Justin Gibbons, where you can get in-depth political analysis from a Christian worldview. Transcend partisanship and political ideology with us as we seek true discipleship, in the public square.
3: This is the Church Politics Podcast with Michael Ware and Justin Giboney. Uh Justin, after a couple of weeks of Easter break and some technical difficulties, we're back with a podcast. It's good to be with you.
2: It's good to be with you as well. It has been too long, and so I'm just happy to be back on the mic, happy to have another opportunity to talk about the intersection between faith and politics as we always do. So let's get to it.
1: Yeah, there's a lot to discuss. Hi, I'm Jay Farner, CEO of Quicken Loans, America's largest mortgage lender. Let's talk credit card debt for a minute. If you feel you're carrying too much of it, you're not alone. The average household in the U.S. carries over $8,000 in credit card debt. And for a record nine years in a row, J.D. Power has ranked Quicken Loans highest in the nation in customer satisfaction for primary mortgage origination. Call us today at 800-QUICKEN or go to rocketmortgage.com. For J.D. Power award information, visit jdpower.com. Rate subject
0: to change. Pay 2.13% fee to receive this discounted rate. Call for cost information and conditions. Equal housing lender. License in all 50 states. NMLS number 3030.
3: This week, we took a bit of an Easter break. Uh, Things have uh, accelerated politically. Uh, They have Accelerated on the global scene, and we're going to get to all of it this week. But first, let's talk about the Trump administration and, uh, specifically Michael Cohen. Uh, this is, uh, the New Yorker, perhaps a bit hyperbolically, although perhaps prophetically, uh, has called the developments this week the end stage of the Trump presidency. Justin, can you break down for folks just sort of what we've seen develop over the last uh, over the last week, and and do you think that this is uh that this is uh, sort of the beginnings of what's gonna uh really hamper and perhaps bring down the Trump administration, or do you think this is more sort of wishful thinking?
2: It could very well be, but then again, we've heard this probably fifty times before, right? Everything that happens is the end, but I'll tell you this. So, so basically what happened was Trump's personal attorney, Michael Cohen, uh, had his legal office, his hotel and his home raided by the FBI. Now we all know anytime you get raided by the FBI, that's pretty bad news. Uh, it looks like this particular warrant was referred by, uh, uh, Mueller. Um, and, but it's not directly related to the Russia investigation. Now this rarely happens. Rarely do you see. Uh, an attorney get uh his home and office raided like this. Uh, and so we do know it's serious. We don't know exactly what they have or exactly what they were looking for, but there are sources who are leaking once again, and I almost hate uh quoting leakers. Uh, I think there's too much of that probably, but they're saying that it may have something to do with a uh, hundred and a uh, hundred thirty thousand dollars that he uh, supposedly used to pay off stormy Daniels. Um, also, it may be any potential intimidation that was part of that. And then he had some business dealings with the taxi industry uh, that he may have already been under in- investigation for. So there's a couple of issues that he was having. But the reason this is such a big deal is because usually the exchanges between a person and their lawyer would be protected by the attorney-client privilege. Um, and this privilege is really meant to to make sure that no one gets a hold of of of, uh, candid conversations that a client is having with their attorney. It's a part of someone being able to have a strong defense. Uh, and there's a pretty high standard when it comes to that privilege. Uh, but the U S turn So the U S attorney had to go to a federal judge and show that they had probable cause to get this warrant. Uh, so this, there's no, this is no child's play. There's some serious, uh, dynamics going on here and it's possible because one of the ways to get around attorney client privilege, is when the communication is believed to be used in the furtherance of a crime or fraud. Um, a, a lot of times, you know, when people do things that are questionable, they do it through their attorney because any communication between them uh, will not get into co- to court. It won't be part of the evidence. But when they breach that type of uh, privilege, it could be trouble uh, because they're going to see a lot of information that you may not have thought that they uh that uh, you may not have wanted them to see, or they're just going after information that wasn't part of that attorney client privilege because everything in the hands of attorney is not necessarily privileged. Either way, this happens rarely and it can't be a good sign for Trump and his team. Yeah.
3: Just uh, another development. We talk a lot on this podcast about just the fact that, uh, that he doesn't, uh, this president doesn't seem to, uh, doesn't seem for all of his talk of loyalty doesn't seem to be a too loyal to the people he selects to work for him and then b seems to be a pretty awful judge of who he selects to work for him and that's just evident in uh both the turnover in white house staff and the fact that uh, so many of people he's allowed to be close to him uh have been caught up in uh Mueller's investigation have been caught up in various sort of misdeeds and so uh, will will uh, you know, my mama told me something. About, or maybe you know, it's the, just about the company you keep. Yeah,
2: <laughs> yeah, maybe it's just something about him. Anybody right? that gets near exactly him or confides right. or is is close to him, just because he's kind of uh, uh poisonous. So yeah, something's going on. This is this is bad. But once again, we hear this over and over that this is the the uh, the the final thing. This is the nail in the coffin. And so we will see. It very well could be though. Yeah, we'll we'll see and we'll see about paul ryan's
3: uh uh announcement that he will be retiring uh, and other news after the break this is the church politics podcast
1: i love my family i'm best friends with my dad and then this 2016 election cycle came up
2: and it really drove a wedge in between some of us
0: donald trump's the first person that got us he's the first person to like, actually at least pretend to give a damn about it Check out Depolarize, the podcast that fights against tribalism and incivility by searching for common ground at the intersection of politics, psychology, and faith. This season, we look closely at the phenomenon of white evangelical support for Donald Trump and the many difficult related questions that are begging to be answered.
3: Two grown men picked him up, a 15 year old kid, and threw him as hard as they could off the hood of the car. Uh, and it's shocking. It's shocking. His whole, all his teeth came out. Uh, he's bleeding all over the place. And they look. They look to us, right? They say, "You fucking niggers. This is what happens to you."
0: God isn't far away. God is with us now, here, now. Every moment matters. I don't know why I'm crying. It just, it just hurts. Find Depolarize on iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. We're back
3: at the Church Politics Podcast, and and just in news that was uh, kind of a surprise, but kind of not. Paul Ryan announced that he would be uh, retiring uh, with uh, uh, a a statement that, uh, you know, in some ways is going to send shocks through the Republican caucus. Uh, We already see jostling for uh, who's going to take over for Ryan, while at the same time, a sense of dread in the caucus that, uh, that, 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 uh, it might, the next speaker of the house might not be a Republican even. And so they're jostling for a position that, uh, may not be theirs to jostle for. But, but uh, Justin, we've talked on this show quite a bit about uh, Paul Ryan getting major tax reform as something he's wanted for years. Do you think this was, a? do you think this was a sense of him just feeling like he's, accomplished what he came to do or do you think this is uh paul ryan seeing the writings on the wall and not wanting to uh not wanting to have to be accountable for what comes uh what comes after the midterms?
2: It may have been a little bit of both but probably mostly the latter uh let me start off by saying that i think uh paul ryan leaving is a loss for american politics uh straight up um I don't always agree with him. I've been very vocal on this show about my disagreements with Paul Ryan. But what I did always believe was that he was thoughtful uh, and that he wanted he, he was working in good faith and wanted to do what was best. And so you can have philosophical differences. But when you lose someone like this who is trying to do their best, he didn't get into a lot of back and forth and just, you know, trash talking and just just trying to say whatever was provocative. He always seemed like a serious person that was actually trying to get to the good policy. Uh, we know that tax reform was something big for him. I think it was an accomplishment that uh that he's proud of. I personally thought that because he wanted that so bad that sometimes he could have stood up to Trump a little more than he did. And that was one of my biggest complaints about what was going on towards the end. It seems like he was just trying to hold on to get that tax reform done Uh in his letter. He stated that he was leaving uh because, you know, he had done the things he came to do and that he wanted to take care of his kids. And I think those are all uh very good reasons and had something to do with it. But when he took the speakership, he knew that he had kids, right? Uh when he took this job on, he knew uh what was going on. And so I think this is more of a sign that uh the Republicans are about to take an L in the House. Uh, I think a pretty big L in the House. And not only that, but I'm I'm sure just working with Trump and the inconsistencies and you know, they're just shooting from the hip and you can you trust what he's saying or not? I got to go back to my caucus and talk to them based on information I got from the president that could change tomorrow. I'm sure that is highly stressful. That's a position that's highly stressful in the first place. And when you're dealing with someone who's not always, uh uh, let's say, balanced or, or consistent, I can only imagine that it made it even worse. But I must say that I think this is a loss for American politics because we need more people like. Ryan, and that has nothing to do with me agreeing with him. It's just saying we need people who are working in good faith, who are smart, uh, and and thoughtful, and trying to do the best. So I uh, hope the best to him. I hope he takes a position where he can still have an impact on uh, our system, and uh, let's hope it all works out.
3: Yeah, and you know, I think it's uh the other thing it's uh, it suggests is just a furtherance of kind of the brain drain in the Republican Party. Uh, and so you're going to have a party that's going to run up into some pretty big challenges over the next year uh, and, and deep into the, uh, the the second half of this administration's first term. Uh, and without Paul Ryan to sort of add his sort of clear intellectual direction and and heft, uh, it's going to be interesting to see this party uh fight over its soul in what is already a, you know, precarious time. And so I I agree with you. I think Paul Ryan leaving uh, indicates uh, uh, something significant about the Republican party, a loss of, of something of a, of a statesman uh, and someone who could, you know, put some, put some pressure on Trump even behind the scenes. So it's going to be let, let's say that the, Republicans are able to hold on to the House in the midterms, though I agree with you. I think it's going to be difficult for them to do so. Uh, no, no, no one there is going to have the stature that Paul Ryan had in in trying to uh, uh, stand right. up to Trump. So it's it's going to be very, very interesting. And, I'm sorry, yeah.
2: And we, oh, go ahead.
3: Oh, no, and- I was going to say that
2: we've both said before that we well, we prefer a strong Republican and strong Democratic party. Uh, so we're not too, this show isn't a show that just celebrate, celebrates one party getting weaker. Uh, we, we would like to see, we think that helps the system to have two strong parties. And this is a hit. And to your point, I don't know how you recover when you continue to lose state, statesmen like this. Uh, it's a bad look for the Republican party right now.
3: Yeah. Well, Kevin McCarthy, uh, looks like, uh, Paul Ryan's pick, uh, part of the young guns, uh, uh, the group of sort of uh, similarly minded conservatives that Paul Ryan and McCarthy were uh, were a part of McCarthy looks to take over for for Ryan. But uh, but uh, Jim Jordan, the conservative out of Ohio, looks to be positioning for a run. Uh, and then it'll also you know be really interesting to see if if uh, how the midterm elections play and if that kind of shakes up the race, uh, as I'm sure it will. Well, uh, we're going to take another quick break and then talk about uh, the developments in Syria uh, right after this break. This is the Church Politics Podcast.
0: Do you wear funny socks? Most men do. Whether it's at the office or at the bar, your socks are guaranteed to be a conversation starter. Society Socks is a men's sock subscription company that sends two pairs of exclusively designed socks to your door every month. These socks are made of warm, soft, and comfortable blend of combed cotton guaranteed to make you look well-dressed. But why are they called society socks? Socks are one of the most needed and least donated clothing items at homeless shelters. Though society socks aims to change that. With every pair of socks purchased, another pair of socks is donated to a homeless shelter. Not only will your socks feel and look great but you will be confident that you are making a positive change with two surprise pairs of socks arriving to your door every month in your subscription. You'll begin to grow your sock collection. Try our first month of a sock subscription at 50% off. When you use the code off the record, put an end to the boring socks and subscribe today. All right, we're
3: back at the church politics podcast and, um, we have seen, uh, President Trump, in coordination with uh, uh, with uh, Macron and May, so the UK, US, and France, move forward with aerial strikes uh, targeting uh, suspected chemical weapons facilities in Syria, in reaction to a chemical weapons attack that took place uh, earlier this month. Uh, just another of uh, of the Assad regime's attacks on its own people uh and so it was a uh, we saw uh this building up uh throughout the course of last week and and we saw the anticipated uh anticipated aerial attack that is much more extensive than any of the aerial attacks aerial strikes military actions that we saw in 2017 uh justin well you you know i i guess before i toss it to you (laughs) It, I I was very interested in seeing how this played out. I, I just have to say, as someone who uh, a, a, as sort of an observer of how these things get rolled rolled out and communicated to the public, uh, I, I, I think the Trump uh, administration, the Trump White House showed a, a level of discipline and coordination that uh, that is is rare from them i think the fact that trump gave a pretty abbreviated statement and then gave it to perhaps one of the last unscathed or or relatively unscathed members of this administration's uh defense secretary mattis to really be the voice of the administration on this the fact that you had uh, military attaches from the uk from the uk and france joining mattis uh uh, suggested to me they really wanted to make clear that this wasn't just a U.S. operation, uh, that this was a multilateral, uh, partnership of, of, uh, U.S., U.K., and France. Uh, and, uh, Mattis's communication was, was pretty clear. Now, clearly there's internal disagreement in the White House on this, as with seemingly everything else. There, there, are, uh, there were reports in the Wall Street Journal that uh, these attacks were going to be sustained uh while mattis in his press uh conference just uh just really minutes after that Wall Street journal story came out said that uh that this was a limited strike uh that there were no future plans for continued strikes and so clearly there's internal uh disagreement and and jostling over that but I I, I want to say that uh I think in terms of How they handled rolling out the operation, the communication to the public. Uh, there was a lot of, a lot of wisdom in that, not to, uh, not to talk about the wisdom of the attack itself. And then just the last thing I'd say is, uh, I I think there's been a lot of sort of, uh, heated rhetoric and sort of, uh, basically since even before Trump took office of, oh man, this lunatic's going to have his, uh you know his finger on the on the red button and oh ma'am wait till this guy uh you know he's gonna take us into world war three uh and so that when these strikes were made public it was just like uh like right away people were saying oh he finally did it he's you know flying off the handle and uh (laughs) i I just want to remind folks that the evidence suggests UK and France were going to go forward with this attack with or without the US and uh it, it, we can have a debate about the wisdom of these attacks but what this what definitely was not was president trump making a unilateral sort of flippant decision that is completely outside of uh of the of the circumstances uh, uh sort of outside of what the circumstances warranted and I think we need to we need to rein in a bit of our our rhetoric. Not everything has to be about damaging Trump and scaring people about uh, about President Trump. Uh, uh, This was something that was done in coordination. Now, of course, as 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 I saw many people say, uh, the Iraq war was done in coordination with allies. So that doesn't speak to the wisdom of the attacks in Syria. But but uh, this was not a sort of uh, this was not sort of a a lunatic uh, on, on a rampage. Uh, Justin, what were your thoughts as you saw the news reports come in that that the U.S. had had moved forward with a coordinated uh, strike on Syria in response to their chemical weapons attack?
2: Yeah, I think anytime something like this happens, it's a tragedy. Um, we should be on our knees because there's a lot of suffering going on in Syria. Uh, but to your point. Uh, if you feel that something like this is necessary, I think this rollout is probably, uh, the better way to roll it out, uh, multilaterally, uh, an explanation, a brief state statement that's succinct, succinct and not rambling. Uh, that was a, a positive. If you can find a positive in this type of situation, we would just hope that the, the killing and the death and the suffering over there would just stop. But if you're, if you feel like you need to do something like this, which you're doing it. Uh, um, as far as we can tell to stop the suffering and stop people using chemical weapons against their people. So I think we should keep that in mind as well. To your point, uh, the anti Trump people who, you know, we consider ourselves somewhat within that group. You lose, you lose credibility when you pull anything that you can for criticism. Uh, it, it's interesting because, you know, in law, you say, you know, you can make every argument in the book, but the court, is going to start losing uh, respect for your arguments if you're using ones that aren't, you know, that aren't credible. And so we got to make sure that you're just not pulling anything out just to discredit Trump. This was done fairly well if it needed to be done. Um, and we just don't want to see anything like that. Now, let me give a little bit of background to, to all of this. We all know that a few weeks ago that medical and advocacy groups that were working in Syria say that the Syrian government was waging another chemical attack against its own people in East Damascus. Uh, apparently, this was the territory, the last territory that was being held by rebel forces. And the Syrian government uh, was allegedly using uh, nerve gas and chlorine gas against their people. Seventy people or so died by suffocation from the gas. Uh, this gas causes convulsions and foaming at the mouth. Uh, over a thousand people suffered breathing problems and problems with their eyes. Uh as many know Syria is in the middle of a 7 year civil war. Uh the medical and advocacy groups that were making the allegations against Syria, they provided the gruesome details of what was going on. Uh they provided video. They provided photographs and yet uh Bashar al-Assad and his allies have called this these reports fabrications. I think Russia just said that it was actually the UK that that set all the, all of this up and it really didn't happen um they have long claimed that their entire chemical arsenal was destroyed uh but several attacks have happened since uh 2013 uh including one earlier this year and so this attack on the Duma rebels uh caused them to cede the area that they had to the Syrian government and they left and went to other places that were controlled by the government uh Again, we responded multilaterally with the U.K. and with France. Uh, that's probably the best way to go about it if we feel like we need to get into these uh, situations. Um, and Trump very plainly and clearly condemned uh, uh, Russia for this. At the end of the day, in order to get some control over Syria, you're going to have to really deal with Russia and Iran. And that's one of the things that we don't know how that is going to end up. Uh, Russia talks tough, whether or not they're actually going to do something in retaliation or can't or could have stopped any of this. It's hard to tell. Uh, but certainly they're going to be looking out for this. And they have stood by Syria through a lot of the foolishness that they have put on their people. Uh, uh, one other thing to consider with the history of Syria is that this has been one of the major criticisms of the Obama administration uh, in 2013. Uh the Obama administration said that the use of chemical weapons in Syria was going to be a red line. But when they crossed that, when Syria crossed that line, uh, the administration failed to respond mil- militarily. Um, and so instead, they uh, opted to enter into an agreement with Russia that said that Syria should get rid of all their chemical weapons. Well, it's looking like that they did not get rid of all those chemical weapons. The reason that this is such a big deal and people need to understand this is that the use of chemical weapons is a war crime pursuant to several treaties and the Geneva Conventions international humanitarian law. It is viewed as a crime against humanity and the use of it is a weapon of genocide. This is serious stuff. We want to stop these people from suffering. We hate when we see this, we should be praying for the whole situation, Uh, but something has to be done and hopefully Russia and Iran will come to their senses. But we, uh, I don't see any uh, indication that that's the case. And so this could take some time. This is a really rough situation.
3: Yeah, and you know, moving forward, I think there are there are two major areas to consider. And you know, the first is you know one of the reasons why the Obama administration did not act, uh, uh, despite their having drawn the 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 quote unquote red line, uh, is because they were worried about what what would come after, uh, not just with Syria, but as you raised with with Russia, with Iran how it would how it would change the sort of global chessboard. Uh and and those are the challenges that the Trump administration is going to have to face right now. And I, I note they're going to have to face it with uh a State Department that is still uh uh drastically understaffed. <laughs> uh I'm talking like we don't have ambassadors mm-hmm. to major countries that Our players in the region still, uh, almost a year and a half into this administration. Uh, we don't have, uh, some critical, uh, 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 folks at the, at the undersecretary level, uh, yet in place at the State Department. And we don't have a secretary of state because Tillerson, uh, uh, is uh, no longer there and Mike Pompeo is still in confirmation hearings. And so, uh, they're going to have to be navigating a very complex landscape uh, without some of the basic pieces in place that would that would aid in that. The second thing I, I think is going to be a big topic of discussion um, is the idea of reining in the executive's ability to order attacks like this without authorization a specific authorization from yeah. Congress. Now, this is something that we've seen uh it's important for folks to folks to know this has been something that has been uh in some ways a post-9 eleven debate, in other ways a post-LBJ kind of debate. Like this is this is not something specific to Trump. Uh f- from as far as I could tell, Trump is not doing anything that is completely without precedent in ordering these aerial strikes, but there are those who would argue that uh, that the president that had been set is, is deeply dangerous. Uh, and so we've seen bipartisan, uh, uh, work, including Justin Amash in the House, uh, Senator Tim Kaine, uh, 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 in the Senate, the former vice presidential candidate, uh, yeah, pretty famously, uh, sponsored a bill, uh, 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 to, to, uh, uh, to, to rein in the Obama administration when it was coming to military attack. Uh, and so this is a debate that I think will, will heat up. Uh, myself personally, yeah. Justin, I've been, um, uh, I, I think the executive needs pretty wide, uh, pretty wide discretion when it comes to use of military. I, I don't know how you seek, uh, authorization from Congress, uh, for, an attack that is time sensitive uh, that uh, if there's a delay with the attack, uh, chemical weapons, for instance, chemical weapons uh, uh, m- materials could be, could be moved from one site to another. Uh, and, and so I, I'm, I've been someone who's deferred a bit to the executive branch uh, at the same time. Uh, there has to be some congressional oversight uh, Congress does have to feel like they're not just read in, but, but have some ability to, to, uh, to, to, to provide some checks and balances on, on the executives, uh, war authority. But it's, it's going to be a very complex issue that's, that's going to play out politically and, and maybe even in legislation in the weeks ahead.
2: Yeah, that executive authority problem is, is real. Uh, there are practical issues. There are constitutional issues and certainly that type of attack is an act of war. And so they need to get that fleshed out because you do need to act quick in some instances. Uh, but those rules and those, uh, checks are there for a reason. And so we need to be clear about that. Uh, back to the Obama administration very quickly. Certainly there's no suggestion here that any of these decisions were made that were made were easy decisions. Uh, surely, uh, both, hopefully both administrations took those very seriously and did what they thought was best. Uh, however, I think the, the counter argument would be if you draw a red line, then you drew the red line and you kind of leave some of the folks who are fighting out there when you don't, uh, act on it. Yeah. I mean, that
3: was absolutely the, uh, that was absolutely the, the critique. Uh, I, I would urge people to look at, uh, the interview that the Atlantics. Uh, that the Atlantic did with the president during the closing months of the administration, where he kind of uh, talked, talked through his decision-making process here. But, uh, you know, we have friends of the podcast, including Shadi Hamid, who writes for the Atlantic and is a scholar of Brookings, who has been uh, among the more forceful critics of the Obama administration's approach to Syria. I I even, I raised Syria in in reclaiming hope in my book, reclaiming hope is, is uh, something that I thought was going to, uh, cast a shadow over, over the president's legacy. Uh, uh, and so it it was, it was a significant, it was a significant decision. Uh, again, some people look at the, the president's willingness to step back from the red line as, uh, 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 as courageous in itself, uh, that, that he wasn't going to sort of, uh, just out of a matter of following protocol and following sort of the the force of decisions that get made and the momentum of decisions that get made to commit American troops to to battle when he didn't know how it was going to turn out. But then there are obviously uh, others who uh, believe that he weakened uh, weakened America's standing as uh, as a nation uh, whose words could be counted on. And so I think it's it's going to be one of those decisions that uh, history is going to uh, be debating for a long time now. Uh, And and we're obviously continuing to see the ramifications of uh, how Syria policy has developed over the last several decades uh, that that has, you know, most recently led to the uh, the aerial strikes that we saw last week.
2: Yeah, that's right.
3: With that, we uh, we're going to take a quick break. uh, And when we get back, we're going to talk about uh, MLK 50 conference that Brother Justin was able to. Uh, to, to share at. Uh, and so, uh, join us after this, uh, quick break. All right. We're back at the church politics podcast and Justin, you had a chance to be out in Memphis earlier this month for the commemoration of the assassination of Dr. King and for the MLK 50 conference that was, uh, organized by ERLC and the gospel coalition. Uh, Can can you tell us about what it was like being on the ground in Memphis, and then uh, would love to hear a bit about what you what you shared at the conference?
2: Yeah, no, it was great. Um, The Gospel Coalition and the ERLC did a really good job. Uh, I thought it was a groundbreaking event. It's one of the best conventions I've been to in a while. And whether it'll be groundbreaking or not depends on the follow up. And can we follow up on that spirit and? And some of the commitments that were made. But I'll tell you, it started off on the right foot. Uh, the first two speakers really set the tone. Uh, Dr. Russell Moore, Dr. Charlie Dates did not hold back at all. And yet they were both still very aspirational. Uh, Dr. Moore started everything off. And one of the quotes he had, he said, time and time again in the white American Bible Belt, uh, people of God had to choose between Jesus Christ and Jim Crow because you can't serve both. And he said that tragically, they served Jim Crow and tried to rename him Jesus Christ. Um, Dr. Moore took it there. He did so in a way that was very biblical, um, really involved the scripture. And I think he touched a lot of people and the chances that he took and and really being candid about what we needed to do and where we needed to go based on where we had been. Dr. Charlie dates eloquently took white evangelicals to task as well for failing to uphold biblical justice. Um and question that theology that would allow such a failure, but then again, also being very aspirational and kind of opening the arms to say, "Hey, let's try to make this better." Great speakers all around. I mean, you had Trip Lee who was talking about trendy compassion, which was was awesome. All these videos are up on uh on the uh the Gospel Coalition or ERLC's website. Uh, Jackie Hill Perry, we know how she gets down. Karen Ellis did a wonderful job and you really saw a lot of the progeny of the civil rights movement, uh, brothers like Dr. Uh, CJ Rose, Benjamin Watson and Christina Edmondson. And in fact, uh, those last two, I had an opportunity to participate in a panel with on the state of racial tension, uh, where I was asked, um, you know, how can Christians better create a positive atmosphere in politics rather than adding to the tension? And I think part of that is kind of the ability for Christians to even come together. It's hard to speak healing into the world when you have this huge racial and sociopolitical divide. And in order to to mend that divide, one of the statements that I made on this panel was that I, I truly believe that white evangelicals have failed to fully divest themselves or su- separate themselves from the southern strategy or the strategy that opened up the Republican Party to Dixocrats and other racist elements. And when I said that, I was meaning that they still kind of cater to racist donors, uh, racist voters, uh, and consequently that racism within the party taints their politics and their advocacy. Even when they're advocating for something that's right, it sounds like it's coming from a, a place that lacks compassion or it just just doesn't sound right. And that needs to change. Uh, I said that if you really want to see change, then evangelicals have to stop caucusing with racists, otherwise they will continue to be complicit. But that whole event just felt like almost a changing of the guard, uh, really. Uh, in, in fact, Dr. John Perkins walked up to myself and Dr. C.J. Rhodes and said, hey, guys, I've served my generation. It's time for you you guys to serve your own. And so it was a special moment. I'm praying uh, that we have some follow up, that we all work towards making this come together. Don't get me wrong. It's a lot of work to do. There are a lot of people that may not be willing to come with us. But to see some leaders who can communicate clearly, do it in a gospel uh, centered way. It was just uh, it it was encouraging and, a, and kind of a breath of fresh air as we go into this very hard process of getting towards some restoration and hopefully some conciliation.
3: Yeah. Yeah. I was uh, I was able to see Dr. Moore last week. Uh, he was on a panel I moderated at the Q conference and was able to thank him in person for uh, for the great work that that he and the ERLC and the Gospel Coalition did in pulling together that conference. Uh, I was also able to thank him. Uh, they helped coordinate uh, a $1.5 million scholarship program in the Memphis area that uh, will help send uh, uh, young students of color to uh, Christian seminaries and universities around the country and institutions like uh, Wheaton and Gordon College and uh, uh, southern, uh, Baptist theological Sem- uh, seminary. Uh, so many storied Christian institutions put their money where their mouth was in raising that, raising those funds. And, uh, I believe they hope to expand the program beyond Memphis in the coming years. But, uh, it was, I wasn't able to attend, uh, but I was watching some of the live stream and I, I was just encouraged from, uh, from my office and from my home seeing seeing that conversation take place. Uh and so uh, what a what a wonderful thing. And and like you, Justin, I I join you in, in, in the prayers that the that the work continues. Uh but we, we certainly have uh young leaders uh, including yourself that uh that are are ready to take that baton. So uh yeah it was a was a beautiful thing. Well justin, Absolutely. Well, justin I enjoyed it. Yeah hey, Justin I think I think that's all for this week. Uh NBA playoffs picked up this week. LeBron James uh fell fell behind he, just uh just after uh, or just before we started recording this episode. Uh uh we saw LeBron take a L in game 1 of the first round. I believe the first time that that's happened in since 2012 or something I saw. So it'll be interesting to see if if uh if the king can can fight back. I am looking to see Milwaukee Bucks perhaps uh make an upset of the Boston Celtics now that uh unfortunately Kyrie isn't able to to play for for Boston, but uh it, it's going to be going to be fun seeing some playoff basketball. Do do, do you have a team?
2: I, I do have a team, mostly because I have a player. So I I, I came to the point where I started following players more so. Yeah. And so anybody who knows me knows that I am a huge uh, Russell Westbrook fr- fan. Uh, he is the hardest working man in the NBA. Uh, the first player in the NBA to average a triple double two seasons in a row. Um, not the MVP this year, but certainly something, someone that, uh, everyone respects and knows that they're going to get his best game every time they play against him. So I'll be rooting for the Thunder. Uh, and hopefully they can, they can, uh, shake some things up. It should be interesting.
3: Well, Alan Noble will be very happy to hear that. We know our friend Alan Noble is a big, thunder fan uh, and so we'll, we'll see this play out maybe we'll have if if the thunder make it to make it to the conference finals maybe we'll have alan on and and uh, two of y'all can do a victory lap or something
2: <laughs> wouldn't that be nice yeah yeah, yeah.
3: all right well uh, thanks to all of our listeners as a reminder you can engage us uh on on twitter at church politics Uh, or at uh, our our personal handles we're always happy to hear from you we want to know what you want to hear us uh discuss on the podcast uh i'm going to be in indianapolis on april 24th for an event with the trinity forum and in atlanta on may 15th uh with LaCrae for another trinity forum event that will be at the carter center and so hoping to see some of y'all on my travels around the country uh, Justin, do you have anything coming up for yourself and, uh, or, or for the end campaign?
2: Yeah. So, you know, that we're still on our tour, the frontline discipleship Tour. our next stop. will be May 3rd in Chicago. We will be at progressive Baptist church with Dr. Charlie dates. We're excited about that. Then we're going up to hang out with the pulse movement up in Minneapolis on March 5th. And so we're traveling around after that. We'll be uh, in Brooklyn and DC with you. So a lot going on brother. And so, uh, just just trying to glorify him in as many ways as we can we appreciate the support of all of you guys we know we had been out for a couple weeks with technical difficulties and things like that man but for you guys to keep on listening we really appreciate it right
3: all right bless y'all have a good week this is the church politics podcast see you next week
0: I'm grooving for the activists and graduates. I'm an advocate for those filling abandonment in the favelas and slums together ghetto inhabitants. It's like, can anything good come out of Nazareth? The only thing good came out of Nazareth. This is the groove. Tell me, can you handle it? I'm scolding in the ways of runaway slaves. I'm brave. I'm unchained. I'm Frederick Douglass with a fade.
2: I can't believe it.
1: That Philip brought his little brother on our mission into orbit.
2: How long until we get there?
0: How long until we get there? How long until we get there?
1: No, I can't believe how easy it was to save hundreds of dollars on my car insurance with Geico.
0: What's this button do? What's this button do? What's this button do? What's this button do? Don't, no, 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 don't no, touch no. that.
3: Believe it, Geico could save you 15% or more on car insurance.
1: Hi, it's Jamie, progressive number one, number two employee. Leave a message at the... Hey Jamie, it's me, Jamie. This is your daily pep talk.